The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for this Sunday, I decided to go a bit rogue. (laughs) Typically, customarily, we preach either on the epistle or the gospel that's appointed in the lectionary for that day. And I think that's a good that's a good thing to do typically. But I felt moved to preach on a different section of scripture this Sunday. Um, so I'm actually going to be preaching out of the Gospel of St. John, beginning in chapter 3 and doing verses 1 through 8. So that's going to be actually the gospel I'm going to be preaching on today. So that's uh, in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. That's on page 1000. 487 in the Pew Bible, 1,487, Gospel of St. John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, where it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. But canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. A part of life is regret. We sometimes wish we'd done things differently, made different choices. And one form that regret can take is us saying to ourselves, I wish I'd asked myself some certain question. If I had only asked myself that question at the time, I would have gone down a different path and maybe made a better decision. If only I'd asked about that symptom that I had and brought it up with the doctor, maybe something could have been caught in time. If only I'd asked myself, could I really afford this thing I wanted to purchase? Perhaps I would have made some better financial decisions. If only I'd asked myself, and thought reflected more on my options, maybe I could have made a better choice. And so sometimes our regrets take the, that form of wanting, wishing we had asked ourselves a certain question. And so today I want to talk about the most important question that we can ask ourselves. A, a question whose importance is far beyond any of those other questions we might think about and, and dwell on. And so to, uh, to get to that question, we have to go through the gospel today, because it's going to reveal what that question is. So in the ch- third chapter of St. John, we learn about a man named Nicodemus, 
who is a very important figure among the Pharisees. He's not just any Pharisee. This guy is kind of one of the guys in charge when it comes to the Pharisees. And the, uh, God, the St. John tells us that he comes to visit Jesus, but he comes by night. And I, most commentators agree he comes by night because he's afraid of what people will think about him for coming to see Jesus. He's afraid what the other Pharisees are going to think. Many of Jesus' followers are people of low estate. They're people that don't have a lot of resources, they don't have a lot of authority, that in terms of the world and its statuses are very low status people. But it can be spiritually beneficial to be of a low status because it means you have less to lose. You don't have to worry as much about the opinion of other people. You don't have to worry as much about what may be at stake for making a radical decision about what way to guide your life. But Nicodemus is not in that position. He has a, a very prominent position of authority. Um, he has the respect of his peers, one might imagine. And that leads him to exercise more caution in terms of exposing himself as a follower of Jesus. So we have to beware of this tendency in our hearts to value the opinion of other people, to value our careers and status and what we've achieved in life above following Jesus. Because that sort of, those sorts of considerations can make us timid when we should be bold. But Nicodemus does come to Jesus and he addresses him as rabbi and he addresses him as teacher. Now one interesting pattern that you can notice in the Gospels is that when people come to Jesus and call him rabbi, it's usually a signal that they don't quite get it. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, for example, the apostles all address Jesus not as rabbi, but as Lord. All the apostles with one exception. Judas consistently refers to Jesus as rabbi or teacher instead of referring to him as Lord. And it makes all the difference in the world whether we consider Jesus as merely a teacher or whether he, we consider him as Savior and Lord. I've been reflecting recently on a very prominent um, individual, a Canadian psychologist named Jordan Peterson. Very interesting guy, very popular. He, he can pack thousands of people into stadiums to hear his message and, and to hear what he, his thoughts on things. And many of his thoughts are very valuable. I recently picked up one of his books because I was kind of curious about his popularity, what sort of things he had to say. And he has many wise things to say. Um, he talks about the importance of good posture. We, we, we underestimate the importance of things like that. He talks about the importance of um, being cleanly, cleaning up after yourself, having, having a, a very orderly life. He talks about how these things can have a very important impact on your life. And as far as that goes, I think that's all good advice, and that's very wise, and I think there, I can see why people appreciate his advice and his thinking so much. But I think also, um, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, sometimes we wish that God had given us a Messiah that looks more like Jordan Peterson than it looks like Jesus. 
We wish God had given us a Messiah that would give us some good advice, that would point out some things that we could do better, that would pat us on the head and tell us to be nicer to people and then send us on our way. We wish God had given us a Messiah who just had some good advice to give us. But that radically underestimates the peril that we are in. We don't need good advice. We need saving. We need somebody who's willing to come to us and take us out of the condition that we are in and transfer us and transform us in radical ways so that we can be with God instead of being in a place of eternal damnation and punishment. We don't need advice. We need rescue. That's not to say that Jesus isn't a teacher and doesn't have a lot of good advice to give, but that's if people see him only in that way in the Gospels, that's usually a sign that they haven't quite gotten it yet. And sure enough, that's how Nicodemus addresses Jesus as rabbi and teacher and not yet as savior. But he seems sincere in wanting to seek Jesus and wanting to learn more about him and, and uh, learn more from him. And Jesus gives him a response that at first, first glance might seem like a complete tangent. Uh, Nicodemus hasn't asked anything about the kingdom of God. Um, he hasn't asked anything about what Jesus' reply seems to uh, consist of. But in verse 3, Jesus says, I truly, truly I say unto you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now, the Greek word here for um, again, born again, can also mean from above. This, this, same, this word is ambiguous. It can either mean born again or it could mean born from above. And it seems like both senses of this word are going to get played upon in this passage, as we'll see in the exchange between um, Nicodemus and Jesus. So this is a very familiar phrase to us, right? You have to be born again. You have to be born again. That we, We're so familiar with it that sometimes we um, don't really grasp the full meaning of, of, of what Jesus is saying here. What is Jesus saying? So, you know, again, to return to the idea of regret, sometimes we get to the end of a day and we wish, ah, oh, I wish I could have this day to do over again. I really didn't make, the, I really didn't do the kinds of things today that I was hoping to do. I, I frittered away my time in things that weren't really very useful to me or to other people. I wish I could have this day to do over again. If we're in a more serious situation of regret, we might wish that we had a whole period of our life to do over again. Maybe there's a whole stretch of months or even years or even decades that we wish that we could have back so that we could make different choices about how we spent that time. And we can sort of measure the magnitude of the regret by how long a stretch of time we're talking about that we would like to have back again and to do over again. But imagine if someone said, I wish I could just be born all over again. I need to start from the very beginning. Everything from the beginning of my life up to this point has been, in some sense, a mistake, has been, in some sense, an error. I wish I could be born again. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You need to be born again. You don't need a little fix here or there. You don't need to be tweaked. You need to have something radically change in you such that you make a new beginning in the most fundamental way that you can imagine. That's what it means to be born again. It means to start absolutely from the foundations. And it's interesting. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. 
There's a little pun happening here that you wouldn't notice unless you were looking at the Greek, because when Nicodemus says, we know that you are a teacher from God, he says to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher of God because we've seen the signs that you do. The, the, the way that Nicodemus is saying, we know, is literally, we have seen. We have seen that you are a teacher of God because we've seen these signs. And Jesus is basically saying, Nicodemus, you haven't seen anything. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. It requires a radical change in us even to see the problem, even to begin to see the problem or the predicament that we're in. Nicodemus responds to this uh, startling, striking claim by Jesus, uh, and his interpretation of what Jesus has to say is kind of literal, we might say. Uh, he's, he's, but I think he's getting at something important, which is that Nicodemus is saying, if I really need something that radical, if I really need to be born again, if I really need to start from the beginning, how can I possibly do that? How is that even possible for me to start over like that? What, can, what could I even begin to do if I need to begin again from the very foundations? He sees what a difficult thing has been put in front of him. How can I, at this point, start over again? And Jesus has an answer for that. It is possible. It may, it may seem in, impossible in terms of, of a human understanding, but you can begin again. And how? You can be born of water and the Spirit. It's tempting here when Jesus says you must be born again of water and the Spirit to think water might refer to baptism. That was kind of my first thought in reading this text, is that maybe this is a reference to the, to the way that baptism radically uh, changes us. And I think there's something to that, and there's some ancient interpreters that have uh, seen that verse in that way. But there's also some good reasons to think that maybe um, baptism isn't what's in view here. Um, for example, when John the Baptist talks about the, the, that uh, Jesus will come and he will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist wasn't saying that Jesus is going to literally barbecue you, right? He's, when you baptize with fire and the Spirit, it's just a way of saying that the work of the Spirit on our hearts is like the work of fire. Fire is something that can purify, that can purge us of anything that's uh, not worthwhile, and by saying he'll baptize you with fire and the spirit, he just means that when he baptizes you with the spirit, it's going to work on you like fire works on a substance. It's going to purify away all in it that's not uh, worthwhile. And that's, that's what this verse might basically mean as well, is that when, when you are born again in the spirit and the water, the spirit is going to work on you like water. It's going to wash away and purify everything that's not worthwhile in you. So I think the baptism interpretation might still be tenable, but just, just to point out that there's good grounds for thinking that might not be what's in view here. But the important thing to realize here is what Jesus is saying is that it's not going to come from you. It's not going to come from you. Yes, if it depended on you, there's no way that you could possibly begin again. You are what you are, and you can only work with what you have. What you have isn't good enough, so there must be something that comes in from outside of you to make this thing happen. 
The power, your own power is just not sufficient to accomplish this. So somebody has to come in and change you and transform you if this is going to work. It has to be the spirit coming to you, not you coming to the spirit. You don't have anything in you that's going to be sufficient for making this change, for beginning again from the very foundations. It's something the spirit has to work in you. And Jesus gives a reason for this. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Since we're born of the flesh, and the flesh here is not just our physical substance, but our sinful nature, the only thing that can come from that sinful nature is sin. There's nothing, there's nothing good that's going to come from that sinful nature. And so our nature has to be changed for us to be able to be born again and to and to be and to enter into the kingdom of God. And I think there's an important apologetic point here because you hear people that are trying to convey the gospel to other people get in an exchange something like this where the person who's not a believer in Jesus says, uh, I don't need forgiveness of my sins because I'm mostly a good person. I may slip up here and there, but you know I'm mainly a good person, so I don't see why I need Jesus. People will give you that kind of response when you try to convey the gospel to them. And sometimes we get caught in an exchange of saying, well, you may have only these very small faults, or you may do only these very small things that are wrong, but God's standard is, is, is perfect, uh, 100% righteousness, and anybody who falls short of that by any degree, whether it's, um, you know, you, you took a candy bar from the, from the store when you were a kid and didn't pay for it, or, you know, what it, whatever it is, you know, no matter how minor the infraction, you are not going to measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. And there's a sense, of course, in which that's true. None of us measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness for just those reasons. And we can't save ourselves by obedience because of that very reason. But... For one thing, trying to convey it to that way to an unbeliever makes God sound like he's just this hypercritical person who's just going to catch you for any little thing. And if you if you commit like the small if you have an overdue library book, oh man, now you're now you're now you're condemned. It makes God sound very petty and uh, very um, overcritical. So I don't I, I think it's a little bit misleading, and it also underestimates the problem, right? The, our problem as human beings is not that we're mostly good, but we mess up here and there. It, the, our problem as human beings is the sinful flesh with which we are born. The r radical depravity of our nature, such that we have nothing in us that's willing to turn to God and to be obedient to God. And in our natural state, we have no desire to be with God or to obey him. We really don't. We may profess that. We may say those words, but there's nothing, there's nothing really behind it. In our natural selves, we have no desire to dwell with God for eternity and to obey him. And so we cannot possibly see the kingdom of heaven. We cannot possibly enter into the kingdom of heaven while we're in that state. We just don't want to. We simply don't want to. And so a radical renovation of our nature by the work of the Spirit is necessary for us to be able to even do that. So it's not just little faults here or there. It's a radical element of our nature that doesn't want to be with God in our natural state. And Jesus um, finishes up uh, this passage 
um, with a bit of a pun. Um, it's a pun that would, doesn't come across clearly in English translation, usually. But um, if you look at the Greek, the pun is very clear because he's talking about the work of the Spirit. And then he starts talking about the, the wind, right? Um, the wind bloweth where it listeth in, in verse 8. The word wind there is just the word spirit. It's the same word. Um, he's making a pun off of these two senses of the word in Greek, that it can mean spirit, or it can mean like the literal wind that blows. And Jesus said, you shouldn't be surprised that you can't understand this. You, you shouldn't be surprised that this can't be just brought down to your level. There's all sorts of things that you observe all around you that can't be brought down to your level. We learn lessons from nature about this, right? We can't really grasp all the intricacies of the way that God has created nature. We can't even see the wind. We can see the effect that the wind has on objects in the world, but we can't even see where it comes from or where it goes. So why should we expect to have a comprehensive understanding of all the other works that God does? Jesus is saying, yes, what I'm telling you about the spirit is above your comprehension, but so is a lot of other stuff. Why should this in particular surprise you? So I started out by saying that um, there's one question more important than any other question that we need to ask ourselves. And that question is, have I been born again? Has the Spirit begun to work on my life in the way that Jesus describes here? Because it, if it hasn't, there is no hope for us in this world or the next. We cannot see the kingdom of God. We cannot enter into the kingdom of God without that regenerating work that the Spirit does in our lives. So the most important thing for us to figure out right now the most important regret that we can avoid is the regret of not stopping to ask ourselves, have I been born again? And again, if we haven't, that's not something that we can do for ourselves. That's something the Spirit has to do for us. But realizing the position we are in is a very important first step. If someone were to come to me and say, I'm not really sure whether I'm born again or not, one of the first things I would want to know is, have you come to this realization that Jesus says in this gospel passage that what is born of the flesh is flesh and what is born of the spirit is spirit? Do you realize the predicament that you are in? That you are utterly without any power of your own to turn yourself towards God and repent of your sins and be brought into God's kingdom? Do you realize that's the situation that you're in? And I believe that when the full gravity of that comes upon a person and they realize what a, what a um, difficult and indeed hopeless position that, that they are in, the natural response is to cry out for help from Jesus. It's to say, Jesus, I know that I can't of myself turn myself. I know the Spirit needs to work on me. And I know I need you to come and forgive me my sins if this is going to happen. I think when we sincerely realize that and we sincerely turn to Jesus in faith, that's the beginning of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And that's the, that's the beginning of how we can be assured that we are born again. Now that happens at different times for different people. 
There are some people where that happens uh, long after they were baptized. That's how it happened for me. I was baptized as a baby, but I wasn't converted until I was in my late teens, almost my 20s. For some people, it may happen before they're baptized. They may be converted, and then they might they say, okay, because of this conversion, now I want to be baptized. For some people, that conversion may coincide with their baptism. There may, they may be baptized from the time that they're infants, and they can't... Um, they were regenerated as infants, and they can't even remember a time when they didn't love Jesus and want to serve him. Praise God for that. We're all in different situations and different walks of life, but both things are necessary. We must be baptized, but we also must be converted and born again, or we are utterly without hope. And so it begins from that place of saying, I'm helpless, Jesus help me, but it doesn't end there. Because in the life of a sincere believer, we know that fruit will be produced, what the scriptures call fruit, which is just good works. Turning away from sins, repenting of sins, and doing good works towards God and towards other people. The life of a believer is going to be characterized that way. Not a perfect sinlessness. We, we, we still struggle with the flesh even after we are converted. But there will be a progressive sanctification, what the theologians call sanctification, a progressive growth in holiness and growth in good works that we will see if we have sincerely believed and been born again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you acknowledging our helplessness. We know that we were born of the flesh and that the sinful flesh in us is not capable of repenting or turning from its sinful nature and to turn towards you. We need your help if we're going to be born again, and we confess the inability. I pray that all those who hear the words of your scriptures expounded today would have that realization that it would strike near their heart and convict them of their need for your son Jesus and the salvation that he's purchased for us through his sacrifice on the cross. I pray that all those who hear these words would receive the Spirit, that the Spirit would operate upon all of our hearts, changing us into new life and to bring us to you. Lord, we know that we have been born when we see signs of life. Bring forth the signs of the new life in us that comes from your new birth, which comes to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Remember the words of our Lord.